We have a liftoff. 32 minutes past the hour. Liftoff on Apollo 11. Tower cleared. Hi, I'm Eleanor. I'm Emily. And I'm Tom. And together we're Space 3D. Well, welcome to another installment of Space 3D. And this evening we have the pleasure of speaking with John Charles uh, with Johnson Space Center. And I'd like to give a brief introduction for John, and then we'll uh, get to our questions this evening regarding medical capabilities um, in, in the U.S. space program. John has extensive knowledge of a number of the U.S. manned spaceflight programs, and uh, we look forward to uh, actually uh, getting to those questions. But without further ado, let me go ahead and formally introduce our interview this evening. John Charles, Ph.D., Dr. John Charles was a child of the early space age and clearly remembers playing John Glenn while lying on his back in the dusty playground of his elementary school in the launch posture with his legs up and over some handrails. A scientific interest in weightlessness led him to a career in the space life sciences and a lifelong fascination with space flight in general has kept him in the library stacks and online archives researching little known aspects of space flight history. Charles earned his Bachelor of Science in Biophysics at The Ohio State University and his Doctorate in Physiology and Biophysics at the University of Kentucky. He's been with Johnson Space Center since 1983, where he investigated the cardiovascular effects of space flight on space shuttle astronauts and on crew members of the Russian space station Mir. He was mission scientist for the NASA research on American astronauts on Mir, on John Glenn's space shuttle flight, and on STS-107, Columbia's last mission. In between two stints as chief scientist of NASA's Human Research Program, he was chief of the Human Research Program's International Science Office and led the planning of the joint U.S.-Russian year-long ISS mission and its twin study. He's a fellow of the Aerospace Medical Association and a full member of the International Academy of Astronautics, has published over 60 scientific articles, and has received several professional awards. As a side note, John plans to retire in February 2018, but he will continue advocating for human space exploration while doing research on the history of space life sciences. So with that, uh, John, welcome this evening to Space 3D. Well, I'm so glad to be here. Thanks for letting me talk. All right. Well, without further ado, I think we can go ahead and get into the questions here. And the first series of questions we have is regarding Skylab and transition into some of the later programs. So this first question regarding Skylab has to do with the fact that obviously no women flew during uh, that particular mission, but that, of course, changed with the space shuttle. Um, We're curious about what issues were of concern with flying women and what have really turned out to be non-issues. Interestingly enough, most issues with flying women turned out to be non-issues, and women have been as successful as men in spaceflight. Just look at Peggy Whitson and, and uh, imagine any other three-time commander of the space station. But the earliest issues were, the, the not surprisingly, the personal aspects of spaceflight. How does a woman urinate in space, if you can imagine? Back in the benighted 60s, that was a <clears throat> considered a real showstopper. And the reason it was is because the men used a... Uh, urine collection device based on a male prophylactic and the engineers were baffled as to how to make that work on women the answer came with the development of a urine collection system for the space shuttle that involved a hose with the appropriately shaped cup at the end of it that could be used by men and women and after some trial and error and getting the shape just right i think there have been 
very few problems since then. One of the other aspects of women in space, though, was perhaps an apocryphal story, but you've probably heard it. And somebody asked one of the early women astronauts, of course a male engineer, asked one of the women astronauts, probably Sally Ride or one of her compatriots, just how many how many tampons do we need to pack for your one-week space flight? And that was uh, that was taken as evidence that the men were really out of touch and hadn't even talked to their wives about such personal issues as, as female hygiene and space flight. But with proper attention to those details, women were able to fly, as you know, successfully, not on Skylab, but starting in the shuttle, and uh, uh, ever since. <laughs> wow, amazing. I have a question also regarding... Um the private medical conferences, and we understand that those really came about initially from from uh, Skylab, and we're curious about ha- um, any evolution in terms of those. Um, I guess the current the protocol for those private medical conferences. What are you know what's taboo, what's not communicated to the public, etc. Or is everything always for confidentiality remains remains with the flight surgeon? Well, the flight surgeon is obligated to tell the flight director of any medical events that will impact the mission's progress or success. Uh, that happened on a, well, I mean, it happens periodically when, when there's a change in the mission protocol because of some medical aspect. That's because it came up in a private medical conference and the flight surgeon went and briefed the flight director at the next console over. Uh, that It was done... Because of, as you say, the work that was uh, some of the uh, some of the incidents that occurred on Skylab, and uh, especially early in the shuttle program, there was there was a, a, a notable incident early in the, the space shuttle program when the press corps was really unhappy about the, the medical confidentiality aspects of spaceflight. They figured uh, taxpayers are putting these people into space, and every one of their bowel movements and urinations and and vomiting episodes is public uh, property, so we need to be informed about it. And there was a, an episode at one of the post-flight press conferences on STS-7, again with the Sally Ride mission, where Lynn Scher, the reporter, was was uh, bound and determined to make the point, and she insisted on going from crew member to crew member asking if each of them was space sick in flight. And, of course, the public affairs officer and the astronauts refused to answer. So it was it was heated early in the shuttle program, but there has been, uh, since then, uh, some uh, recognition that everybody has their private medical aspects. Nobody wants to talk about whether they're feeling puny or, or not. They just want to be judged on their work performance. And as long as the work performance is uh, is adequate, then the uh, you know what, what goes on between the doctor and the patient is respected, like I say, unless it impacts the, the progress or the success of the mission. Mm. So it's, it's. I'm sure we're not missing anything uh, really interesting, uh, but I, I'm not privy to those private medical conferences either. I just know what, uh, what we end up uh, being told to act upon. Mm. Okay. Um, one other question that uh, just curious about, you know, we know that obviously there was the infamous or not so infamous shower that was used on Skylab and some of the hygiene issues evolved over time where now there's not really a shower used it's you know the wipes that are that are used for um for that purpose but do you happen to know anything regarding um the potential development of a shower I believe it may have been for space station freedom back in the 80s and that there were um actually women nurses that were uh, part of the volunteer crew 
um, I think from the University of Houston that may have done some testing. I don't know if you have any knowledge of that or any comments on that at all. You know, I really don't. The shower was was not a tremendous. It was an engineering success, but not a practical success on Skylab. The Russians continued using showers on their various Salyut stations all the way up through Mir, and they eventually disassembled it on the Mir station. In fact, on Mir, uh, Norm Thagard reported to us that, uh, you know, Norm Thagard being the first American to fly in the Mir station, reported that the Russians were using the shower as a sauna because Russians are big on the saunas and not so much on showers. And at one point then, the, the crew members, uh, the, the Cosmos, were, were ordered to or allowed to disassemble the shower. In fact, at one point, using a machete to break some, to break some bolts or connections. And Thagard reported at one time that he was working in another part of the Mir space station and uh, the blade off of a, a large uh, hatchet came drifting by his ear. He picked it up and put it in his pocket and he figured somebody would come looking for it eventually. And that's just a, a large machete. And that's what they were using to break apart the, the space, the, the Mir space station's shower. So since then, people have been using wet wipes and dry wipes, none of the fancy AstroVacs, you know, the vacuum water squirting devices or anything like that. It's just simple washcloths, just like you used to do back when you were a kid and your mom would, would wipe your face before going to bed. I do recall, I do recall what you're talking about. I've seen the, the still photos from the KC-135 flights of nurses in a shower, and I'm guessing that was just one of those ideas that was eventually uh, excluded for budgetary reasons or, or other operational concerns. Hmm. Very interesting. Although I kind of think the machete is the most interesting part of that show. <laughs> oh, boy. Well, we won't go any further to that. And I've participated in some long-term uh, runs uh, where you go, you know, you're on a team exchange. And the just a set of baby wipes just do a world of difference. I don't know how it would, you know, obviously there's more experience with it in spaceflight going over a period of time. But I was surprised how those baby wipes just really just freshen you right up. Well, that's, that's what they use on the station, baby wipes and, and other, you know, wet wipes to, to towel off and clean up. So it still works. Yeah. Oh, it's interesting stuff. All right. Well, those were the questions we had just kind of transitioning from the uh, first uh, program, Skylab, uh, with long-duration flight. So maybe we can get into some questions, additional questions regarding shuttle. And our first question is regarding exercise. We're curious about how exercise protocols change from the beginning of shuttle to the end of the program. And also, if you could comment on this AREDS, AREDS device, and um, I believe there may be some association with some of the vision issues that have uh, emerged with long-duration flight. Yeah, I'm glad to. Uh, Eleanor, that's, those are topics that we that are near and dear to all of our hearts as we're working on keeping astronauts fit for long-duration spaceflight. In the space shuttle, the exercise was assumed to be important in maintaining orthostatic tolerance, that is, the ability to, to maintain consciousness while upright, and that's an important consideration because the space shuttle was the first and so far only vehicle that, that exposed the astronauts to to the upright posture during the, the re-entry G-loading. On the shuttle, of course, the G-load was not much more than two Gs at its worst during re-entry, but still after a week or two weeks or two and a half weeks uh, in weightlessness, seated upright uh, in a chair while you're feeling double your body weight could potentially cause uh, lightheadedness or even fainting, which is embarrassing if you're one of the backseat guys and possibly catastrophic, catastrophic if you're the, the commander or the pilot. 
everybody was wearing G-suits, and uh, on later uh, shuttle flights, they were wearing liquid cooling garments underneath their pressure suits to keep them uh, cool and therefore help uh, help their orthostatic tolerance. But early in the shuttle program, it was considered that exercise, running on the treadmill being the only available exercise, was important for maintaining cardiovascular fitness, which was important for maintaining orthostatic capacity during reentry and landing. Hmm. So the the commander and the pilot were prescribed 20 minutes or 30 minutes of, of treadmill running uh, every day uh, in flight, and the mission specialists and the lesser astronauts, the payload specialists, sort of had every second or third day, depending on who the flight surgeon was and how strongly you felt about fly- exercise. So it was a, a graded system. Uh, eventually, the shuttle started carrying a, a variety of exercise devices, an improved treadmill, a rowing machine, uh, bicycle ergometer, they were all being tested essentially as prototypes for eventual space station use. Uh, so the, the space station then came along with a, a very well-equipped gym with those uh, those aerobic and uh, anaerobic uh, exercise devices, essentially one copy each on the Russian side as well as the American side. Now you asked about the ARED, that's the Advanced Resistive Exercise Device, which succeeds the IRED, uh, the initial or interim resistive exercise device. The ARED is finally an exercise device on the, on a space flight that is stronger than the strongest astronaut. You, uh, you can generate loads of 600 pounds lifting, which I understand is at the upper limit for any astronaut. Unlike the IRED, which was uh, easily overmatched by some of the, the bulkier and more muscular astronauts. So with the ARED, an advanced resistive exercise device, now on board the space station, we have seen evidence and we now start to believe that the, the loss of bone tissue, that is the, the, the bone atrophy in space flight and the muscle atrophy, can be controlled with diligent use of the resistive exercise device as well as the other devices that keep your cardiovascular system and, and rest of your body generally healthy. Uh, we've done studies that, that uh, use both the ARED and the bisphosphonates, the Fosamax, you know, the, the stuff that uh, you prescribe to postmenopausal females to keep their bones intact. And that, that shows that the combination of the two does an even better job of protecting bone health uh, in space flight. So that we have essentially learned how not to atrophy, how not how learned how not to lose bone mass and extended weightlessness for the, as long as we've been able to fly. That's one of the important reasons I flew the one-year mission just a few years ago. So the, the question now for future space flights is not how do we protect the bones, but how do we protect the bones inside of a small volume that cannot accommodate the full ARED. The full ARED is essentially the size of, of one of the smaller modules on the space station. And since a future vehicle in uh, lunar space or going to Mars may not be much larger than one or two space station modules, you cannot accommodate the full scale ARED. So our job now is to figure out which of the exercises is important enough for mission success and how to build a device small enough to do those exercises and only those exercises to maintain astronaut fitness for mission tasks, but probably not maintain them in a general uh, all-around uh, fitness like you'd have in a gym on the ground. Hmm. Wow, that's interesting. What about just using bisphosphonate alone? Well, uh, alone it does do a good job, 
but uh, it doesn't protect the muscles in the cardiovascular system. So yeah. the resistive exercise device uh, helps the bones and the muscles uh, and the cardiovascular system during resistive training. And also, interestingly enough, uh, astronauts are big exercise fans, if only for its psychological, uh, you know, uh, uh, recuperative powers. So one of the reasons we're talking about exercise devices, even on the Orion vehicle, which is going to be used for, you know, one-week jaunts from here to the vicinity of the moon to dock with a, a mini space station perhaps in, in, in the vicinity of the moon, one of the reasons we're talking about exercise, even on the Orion, is as much for its its uh, recreational value as for its physical uh, physical fitness value. Wow, very very interesting. Um, yeah, that that's it. Also, be interesting to see how that's going to be solved for that small, vo- relatively small volume. Yes, very much so. It'll it'll look sort of like a a rowing machine. It'll have different uh, different attachments and different settings. So you can you can do resistive exercise, so weightlifting and curls and squats and things like that. But you'll be essentially uh, while you're in the Orion, essentially you'll be moving back and forth across the living space. So people that are not exercising will have to be. You know, either forward or aft of you while you're doing your exercise, and then probably having holding towels up to catch the sweat that will be slinging off your body. <laughs> Lovely. Um, yeah. Waiting their turn. Yeah, exactly. I don't know if I was mistaken or not. Is there an association with any of the vision issues with the use oh, of I, A-Red? Sorry, I didn't say that. Yes, uh, there may be. Uh, the Russians have long poo-pooed our vision issues by saying, well, it's because you're doing a uh, that resistive exercise device, so when you're doing your heavy lifting, you're, you're grunting and you're sque- increasing your blood pressure, and that increases your your intracranial uh, uh, pressure, you know, the, the central sp- cerebral spinal, spinal fluid pressure, and that's what's causing all of your uh, vision problems, if, in fact, you're having vision problems. The Russians took a long time to be convinced we really were having these vision problems, and it was took... Uh, it took uh, like a lot of effort to, to convince them to, to help us under try to understand these because they just thought it was you know just a you know, a western a western problem and not real real cosmonauts didn't have those problems until they went back and looked at their data and they said well maybe some of our boys have been having those problems too so mm-hmm. they they sort of got got a little bit more interested in it but it it, it has it, it is an obvious question to ask whether this very uh, uh, heavy lifting that astronauts will like to do can cause those kinds of uh, uh, very brief transient increases in, tr- in intracranial pressure, which might predispose or or exacerbate people that, that are having these visual issues. Uh, so we're, we're trying to do studies to understand whether that is the case, whether there's an association there that's important, or whether it's, it's just a, a random coincidence. But uh, interestingly enough, speaking about the, the vision problems, it seems to be an issue of of the, the kind of astronaut that uh, Dan Golden used to call the pale, stale males, you know, the older, mostly white, uh, elder, older astronauts, not elderly, but older astronauts, because it doesn't seem, based on very preliminary findings, doesn't seem to be quite the concern it was before in women and in the younger uh, male astronauts that are now flying on the space station for longer periods of time. So there's a lot of questions about this, but, but one of the things to remember is that this is not, turning out to be the showstopper that we were once concerned it is. There is a decrease in visual acuity, especially near visual acuity, which can usually be compensated for by increasing strength of, of 
you know, corrective lenses. So you carry a, a couple of sets of glasses with you. And it doesn't seem to be, uh, it's not totally reversible post-flight, but it is at least partially reversible post-flight. So we're less and less concerned that people will arrive on Mars after a six or eight month transit and not be able to see well enough to explore the planet. We're, we're thinking it's the problem is largely under control with, with what we think we understand now. Well, that that's a relief because I, I had a lot of concerns about that when it started becoming mentioned more and more. Um, so that's that's pretty interesting. So thank you for that. Um, uh, we have a question regarding John Glenn's flight, which you were involved in in 1998. Um, what were some of the concerns with flying him? I mean, was were you know curious about the initial reaction regarding that? Also. <clears throat> You know, from from watching from afar, it, it seemed interesting that uh, there were two physicians, one being a cardiac surgeon that flew on on uh, Glenn's mission. And curious about the you know kind of the whole story, the background story regarding flying John. Well, there are two physicians on board because the, the other one was Chiaki Mukai, the Japanese payload specialist who had been a backup for Neuralab. And after Neuralab flew, you know, there was there was some understood obligation to fly her on another mission, if possible, since she didn't fly on Neuralab. She just happened to be a, uh, an MD, and that was why she was the backup on Neuralab, is because the Neuralab flight was so heavily medically oriented. So that that was just coincidence. Could have been somebody else. But I think Scott Perezetsky uh, himself was, was added or was part of the initial crew when it looked like John Glenn was going to fly. And Scott does say that he was Glenn's personal physician during the flight. Uh, I'm, I don't recall specifically the timing whether Glenn was announced before the, the, the Perezetsky was uh, before the rest of the crew was announced or vice versa. I sort of think that the crew was already in place when Glenn was added to it, in which case you can't really sort of, you know, prospectively add somebody to take care of another astronaut. But anyhow, it's an interesting topic for speculation, and maybe Scott's book will say more about that when I finally end up reading it. Uh, but the uh, the concern or the uh, the interest in flying John was, was largely, was largely uh, as a way of testing what was sort of his hypothesis, which is that space flight mimics aging as a sort of an accelerated aging and he was just wondering uh, you know his hypothesis was since i'm already elderly will my adaptations to space flight be smaller will i've already been pre-adapted to space flight and you can imagine if that hypothesis is true then suddenly uh, you know 50 and 60 and 70 year old people consider themselves prime candidates for space flight at to the detriment of you know the 30 and 40 year olds that are, are are waiting and waiting their turn if if your concern is primarily the physiological adaptation of space flight uh, it turns out that uh, in the final analysis, John Glenn was as good an astronaut in, in 1998 as he was in 1962, and that was largely because he had the right stuff genetically. He, I like to say he chose his parents well, and he was uh, well equipped physiologically to to under to tolerate the stresses of spaceflight. Also, the stresses of a shuttle mission were, were not tremendous stresses. It was not six or eight Gs on launch, and it was you know not a lot of shake, rattle, and rolling. The shuttle was designed to be a gentle vehicle for getting into space, gentle coming back to, to the Earth, because uh, if not for the astronauts, at least for some of the payloads that were planned to be fairly delicate uh, assemblages like space telescopes and so forth. So uh, we were anxious to see John, you know, those of us on the inside, and I think many folks on the outside, thought it was just the right thing to do. You know, John deserved a, a victory lap because
because of all of his support, because of what he meant to us. Like I said, he inspired me and many, many others to get into the space business. And so we were glad to see John Glenn being assigned to the mission and uh, had no real uh, concerns. And it was it brought us a lot of, of uh, attention and it was uh, a lot of fun to work with them and uh, have a chance to, to work, you know, essentially shoulder to shoulder with, with your hero. I was One of my happier memories was uh, some a year or two after the flight when John Glenn actually called my office uh, and talked to me personally. He was actually looking for somebody else's phone number, but it was nice to sort of for him to sort of reach out to me, you know, have my number in his Rolodex, and here's a chance for me to, to get a phone call from my childhood hero. So in that regard, it was a lot of fun. It was very valuable, I think, and uh, it was an important demonstration that uh, if you're properly, if you take care of yourself, there's really not any reason you can't fly in space at any age. Yeah, I I thought that was, it was a very inspiring mission and kind of a related thing I've heard actually with the commercial um, participants that have undergone some centerfuge training with Virgin Galactic. I've actually read that that the older subjects seem to tolerate G uh, better than the younger subjects. That they had fewer yeah. gray outs. Is, is that is that true? Well, that's that's probably true because the older you get, the stiffer your blood vessels, especially your arteries, get. And if your arteries are stiff, and even your veins are a little bit stiffer, then you're not so likely to to, to feel or to see your body fluids being shoved down to the lower part of the body during g loading. You know, it's it's, it's like the difference between a uh, a thick, you know, Tigon tube and a, and a balloon full of water. You know, the, the Tigon tube will keep its shape and the, and the fluid will stay at the top of the tube and the balloon sort of sags toward the bottom. So I'm not at all surprised to hear that. That's sort of like what we used to hear, uh, you know, in the early days of the shuttle program as well, when they're comparing test pilots and jet pilots with, you know, the scientists that are going to be flying on the, on the, the space vehicles uh, as payload specialists or mission specialists. And the folks that were high-time jet fighter pilots generally had better G-tolerance than the, the youngsters that hadn't developed those reflexes and so forth yet. <laughs> That's interesting. I wanted to turn our attention to some... Join your Space 3D co-hosts, Emily Carney, Tom Hill, and me, Eleanor Rangers, on our next podcast, where we'll continue our discussion with John Charles, delving into issues pertaining to space motion sickness, emergency egress, and additional medical insights from space shuttle and shuttle mirror flights that have implications for expedition class mission medical contingencies.